This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. And Buiti Binafi, that is a Garifuna greeting for you all. Thank you all for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, white, cisgender dudes. What? No, it's true. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. That was a nice podcast. <laughs> yes, we will. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Tracy Jean Goodman, a New Zealand Maori woman who murdered an elderly woman during the course of a burglary. So this one is going to be a little bit different. I've been trying to find a case of a serial killer of color in New Zealand for literally years, yeah. and it seems like there isn't one. Yeah. So we chose this case because it's based in New Zealand, and I've been dying to talk about New Zealand, <laughs> but there is only one victim involved, so she's not a serial killer. All right. Well, uh, before we get into it, how you doing? I'm okay. Um, I, I'm pretty good, actually. And I just wanted to say that I'm uh, super proud of my daughter who's teaching my grandson empathy and oh. doing a fantastic job. So oh, well, that sounds amazing. <laughs> how is she doing that? Well, she just told me a story this week about how uh, my grandson was playing inside with a, another kid and then 
another boy that he plays with a lot came to the door and wanted to know if uh, they could play and uh, they didn't want to go outside. So they said no. And uh, my daughter said to my grandson, you know, sometimes he complains because he doesn't have anybody to play with. Uh And uh, she said, well, how do you think he feels? You know, they doesn't have anybody to play with. And uh, remember what it's like when you don't have somebody to play with. And then my grandson told the other boy that he was playing with inside, said, let's go play with with, uh, the other kid. And the other boy was like, I don't want to. I don't want to go outside. Mm -hmm. And my grandson, uh, she heard him explaining to the other kid how, you know, the other kid doesn't have anybody to play with and it'd be nice to go play with him. So, (laughs) oh, my God, I know. My heart just exploded out of my chest. That's so sweet. I teared up when I heard the story. So... Oh my God, that's fantastic! So All yeah, right. that made go. my heart happy to hear that. Look at look at that! Wow, that's a, that's fantastic. What else is up? My sister Minnie, mm-hmm. who lives in Edmonton, Canada. Yeah, in Canada, <laughs> and uh, you know it's really high up in Canada. It's like. <laughs> Like by Alaska? Uh, not that far up. Okay. But, but you know, uh, kind of in the middle of the province. Okay. And um, they're supposed to get temperatures over 100 degrees Fahrenheit this week, which is oh, nuts. Yeah. The Pacific North Northwest is where where um, my mom and uh, my siblings are and um, quite, a, quite a few family members uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And they're, they're, they're like, uh, okay, we know we're babies compared to what you guys deal with in Phoenix. But we're just not made for this. Like my brother, right. he They're doesn't have, yeah, doesn't have an um an air conditioner, air conditioner, yeah. and then uh, like the roads um are buckling because oh it's my too God. hot. It's wow. crazy. It's crazy. Um, and I saw a really funny meme. It was Homer Simpson, uh, saying that this this heat it's the hottest it's ever been in his life, and uh then saying now Bart, this is the coolest or it, that it's ever going to be in your life. Life. Like saying global, essentially global warming global is, has warming. you fucked. Yeah. 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 So, um, well, enjoy, enjoy y'all. Stay, you know, stay hydrated. Drink your water. Get some spray bottles, cooling towels. Um, if there are cooling centers in your community, take advantage of them. I know several churches, at least in Spokane, where my family's at, um, are uh, acting as cooling centers. Um, oh, nice. So, and, and like even li- libraries, just wherever you can go to get respite from go, the heat. Go because to the movies. Go to the <laughs> movies yeah you can die if it's too yeah, hot yeah and you can't like um we can't do an episode on the sun uh, a true crime episode on the sun killing people so yeah. just stay safe out there okay Take uh, lots of water yeah well uh mercury is in reggaeton i mean retrograde uh and uh shit has been so weird this week I like uh we're gonna get into microaggressions uh in the episode but somebody like touched my hair oh my uh, god I, I uh I braid I braided my hair I got box braids you know it's my summer like protective style and it's long it's glamorous you know it like beautiful yeah. Beyonce adjacent thank you and uh you know I, I I'm very proud of it but that doesn't mean people can just come touch up to it. me and yeah. touch me and it was embarrassing because somebody else was like oh my 
God, she touched your hair. Are you okay? I was really glad he said that. I was like, because I got like hot and sweaty. <laughs> like wow, I wanted yeah. to say something, but I just, I just was scared. Or, or yeah. I just, I didn't have it in me at the time, you know, and um, I'm beating myself up for not slapping the, slapping the bitch. Slapping that bitch. Slapping yeah. a hoe. But um, yeah. And uh, again, what would possess her? Mercury and reggaeton. Uh, and then <laughs> um, I was going to say, I'm not sure if you saw that General Mark Miley, who was like, oh, yeah. uh, mic drop for that guy who was like, yes. yeah, I want to know about white rage. I want yeah, yeah. to, we need to learn about we need this. To talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so mic drop for that guy. And it was just wild because it was like, I had to rub my eyes. What is this white man talking about? Yeah. <laughs> He's making so much sense. Some old white dude in the military. Yeah. yeah. Says he <laughs> wants to know about critical race theory. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. It was amazing. And then um, old whitey walks the kids to, to summer school in the morning and I get a text message on my phone look what I found it is a like 100 pound tri XL bully uh, and, and that means he's tricolored he's got a huge head and huge oh my feet God. and it's just a picture of him in our swimming pool and I'm like at work like what the what the fuck happened <laughs> uh, and so uh yeah, apparently the dog just like came up to my kids and my husband as they were walking to school and he's never left. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, but he's so sweet. Aww. Oh my God. So, but it's, it's our dream dog. We've been, we've been looking for a dog like this for uh, like since forever like a year wow. or two um so it is really really weird and then i got a flat tire um that's never happened to me before my tire exploded <laughs> on the freeway <gasps> oh my god uh, and i <laughs> it was kind of funny because i was talking to the 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 car lady and i was like um my tire's flat I'm, i i need to get a tow chuck and she was like well can you go fill it up with air? And I was like, funny thing happened. I'm at a gas station right now and the air machine is broken. Oh my gosh. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, it was, it's just like weird, one weird thing after another all week. Did Am I the only one? Please get at us, Fruities. <laughs> the, it's been, am I the, Mercury's in retrograded shit's going nuts around here. Um, so anyway, <laughs> now we're going to get into some listener letters. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, angels. Thank you. Oh, I love that sound. What, you, what, what is in that bag, Beth? <laughs> we got an email from Tiana who said, uh-huh. I'm a huge fan of your podcast and absolutely love that you're shedding light on the undertold stories of serial killers and victims of color and breaking down the stereotypes. While listening to your latest episode about Canada's hidden racism, it occurred to me that I kind of do that too. Oh. Several months ago, I published a children's book about Canada's black history called Trailblazers. The book chronicles Canadian history through the undertold stories of some of the incredible Black changemakers who have been left out of our textbooks and mainstream narratives. Natasha Henry, the historian you referenced in your episode, even helped me with the research and editing of the book. That's really exciting. That is awesome. (laughs) After a lifetime of being explicitly and implicitly told that Black Canadian stories don't matter and that racism isn't a problem in Canada, the Mm. reception has been so affirming. Many teachers have started to incorporate the book as part of their curriculums and parents routinely express how powerful it is for their children to see themselves reflected in our history. Anyway, I know that our work is very different, but it's so encouraging to see the many ways that people are pushing back against white-centered knowledge and the racist underpinnings that determine whose stories get to be told and how. Yes. Yes. Fantastic. (laughs) 
Tiana, thank you so much. That yeah. was beautiful. And um, Tiana did send us uh, information about where and how to find her book. We will put it in the description box. She encourages everybody to find a black bookstore to buy it from or a BIPOC bookstore. Um, what else is in that bag? So um, I wanted to say thanks to Rhymes with Crime and Boy Hog for your five star reviews. Thank you. Yes. Thank you all so much. <laughs> Well, we got some new patrons this week. Uh, Thank you to Brandy H. Francis K. Rikita D. And Shelly H. Okay, so here are your tunes. Brandis come around my way, around my pod. Whenever true crime say so. True come say, here we come, no one's home, please don't die. Brandis, is it safe though? Is it safe? <laughs> okay, uh, next. Oh, 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 oh. Francis K, Francis K. Oh, uh oh, oh, uh-uh-uh-uh-oh. Uh, 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 uh. Francis K, for Francis K. <laughs> can't kill my, can't kill my, no, they can't kill my Francis K. They've got us like nobody. <laughs> okay, uh, this next one, because Mary J. Blige, uh, Check out her documentary on Prime, y'all. The album "My Life" is twenty five years old, and I'm I'm an old person. Um, but anyway, this is in honor of that. Rakita D. All I really want is Rakita D. Indulging in true crime, it would be so sweet. All I really want is Rakita it a day. Oh, help me sing it. All I really want is Rakita it a day. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, th- this last one, I have to give a backstory because we're talking about a Maori woman today and Maori culture is coming up. And uh, this song, This Is Me, from that movie, uh, and it's sung by a Maori Broadway actress named Kiala Settle. So I hope I don't fuck it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when a serial killer is in your town... I'm going to solve the case, going to hunt it down. <laughs> I'm not scared to be seen. True crime is the life for me and Shelly. Oh, 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 I'm not scared to be seen. True crime is the life for me and Shelly. <laughs> Okay, I'm just going to give myself hip-hop air horns. Yeah, that was great. (laughs) Um, That was a lot of fun. I hope you guys like those. Anyway, now we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to get into the story when we come back. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow 
on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. And we're this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very yeah <laughs> podcast a very long time, and I actually do though in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. All right, guys, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time <laughs> to fess up. It's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. So sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends. Ever heard? of it? Why, yes, I have. <laughs> I love Best Fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for the super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. Ooh. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. <laughs> now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. <laughs> there is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Back. Remind us, who is our subject today, Beth? Today we're talking about Tracy Jean Goodman, a Maori woman 
woman who murdered an elderly woman during the course of a burglary. All right, let's get into some stats. So, Tracy Jean Goodman, TJG, was a Maori woman from New Zealand. Uh, She was born in 1963, which is significant because she came of age when there was this resurgence of Maori activism, visibility, and pride in New Zealand, which we'll get into a little bit. And um, the murder victim, the one murder victim in this case, was Mona Morris, 83, who we believe is a white woman. Um, However, Goodman had a rap sheet that included at least 85 burglary victims. All over the age of 60, I think the average age was like mid-80s of her victims. Um, So she clearly had a type. Um, And Tracy, uh, her crimes took place beginning in 1979, mostly burglaries. She did serve some prison time. And then the murder happened in 2005. So uh, now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Our setting for this story is New Zealand, which I have been wanting to visit. Hell yeah. But have not had a chance. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. And uh, Americans are like fleeing to New Zealand because they're so much better than we are. Yeah. And it looks absolutely gorgeous. And has a temperate climate in most of the country. And so, uh, yeah, looks great. Yeah. So anyway, while some areas have subtropical weather during the summer and the inland alpine areas can be as cold as negative 10 degrees Celsius or 14 degrees Fahrenheit in the winter. See, now I would have to count myself out. Uh, I would die. <laughs> of that part. Uh, yeah, that Just part, that part is not for me. <laughs> now, uh, most of the country lies close to the coast, which means mild temperatures, moderate rainfall and lots of sunshine. People from New Zealand are often called Kiwis mm. after the little flightless bird that is unique to New Zealand. They're adorable. Wait a minute. Is that the, the like Kevin from the movie Up? Uh, no. Oh, no. okay. Kiwis are like brown and, and they're they're kind of oval shaped. Oh. <laughs> and they're fuzzy. They're really cute. Oh, I see them. Yeah, they don't yeah. even look like birds. They look like little yeah. fuzzballs. Yeah, they're actually, they have more in common with mammals than they do with birds. Really? Yeah. How did you even hear about this this creature? What is going on here? I've never <laughs> you've seen this or heard of this before. Well, there you go. Now you have. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I always thought New Zealanders were uh, called kiwis after the kiwi fruit. Me too. But as it turns out, kiwi fruit are actually named after the bird too, <gasps> because they're fuzzy and kind of shaped like the kiwi bird. Done. Dun dun <laughs> Mind wow. blow. Oh my <sighs> gosh. Give me my edges back. Jeez. So so the Maori thought the birds were special. Uh Temanu Huna Atane, the hidden bird of Tane, god of the forest. Kiwi feather cloaks, uh Kahu Kiwi, originally made by sewing kiwi skins together, were Chaanga or treasures usually reserved for chiefs. Wow. In the early 1900s, cartoonists started to use images of the kiwi bird to represent New Zealand as a country. Then during World War One, New Zealand soldiers were referred to as kiwis and the nickname stuck. I um, I just 
think it is such a cute name. To, it is. It's um, a really cute name. It invokes nothing bad. Yeah, is un- invoked when you hear the word kiwi. Right. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mouth. Mouth is watering. What a what a pleasant fruit. What a cute little bird. What a nice New Zealand person. Uh, the Maori are the indigenous people of New Zealand, or in in Maori, Tangata Fenua, meaning people of the land. By the way, the WH sound is a F sound. I kept hearing them say fana, which means yeah. family. And, but when I, I was watching the code's captioning, I was like, WH, how does that? I get it now. Yeah. Well, I, I listened to a lot of pronunciations when I went through this and oh. the lady the lady was saying Fenua. So that's what I put. Thank you. Yeah. No, I, I watched a lot of movies and uh, it just now putting that together. So thank you. <laughs> so or in Maori, Tangata Fenua, meaning people of the land. About a thousand years ago, the Maori people voyaged from Hawaii across the vast Pacific Ocean in small ocean going canoes and became the first first inhabitants of Atiaroa, the Maori name for New Zealand, which means the land of the long white cloud. It is unknown where Hawaii is, but it's believed the Maori came from an island or group of islands in Polynesia in the South Pacific Ocean. There are similarities between the Maori language and culture and others of Polynesia, including the Cook Islands, Hawaii, and Tahiti. I think that's pretty cool. Because what? Uh, pretty dope. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before white Christian colonizers came along, the Maori had a rich oral tradition. Like the people who were tasked with memorizing the history of the culture and the people had like outstanding memories and abilities to recite um, their history. So they didn't really need to write things down. They did they did carvings, but they didn't have like an alphabet. And the colonizers somehow got the Maori to translate their language and commit it to writing. But they didn't like switch it to English, like try to teach them English. They let they oh. taught them how to write Maori down, not English. Oh, wow. Yeah. According to the Maori, the first explorer to reach New Zealand was Kupe. Using the stars and ocean currents as his navigational guides, he ventured across the unknown Pacific on his voyaging canoe from his ancestral Polynesian homeland of Hawaii. More people followed Kupe over the next few hundred years, landing at various parts of New Zealand. It is believed that Polynesian migration was planned and deliberate, with many canoes making return journeys to Hawaii. The Maori were expert hunters, gatherers, and growers. Maori warriors were strong and fearless, able to skillfully wield a variety of traditional weapons, including the spear-like taiaha and club-like mare. And I'm sorry if I pronounce those incorrectly. Yeah, we're sorry in advance, but we're trying. Yeah. So the first Europeans to sight New Zealand, oh, this is when they quote-unquote discover uh, was a Dutch explorer named Abel Tasman in 1642. He never landed, but encountered the Maori at the top of the South Island in what is now called Golden Bay. By the way, I have to I have to say this. I just learned that gorillas were discovered by white people in like 1902. However, gorillas have been around for Forever. a long time. Yeah. But some white dude is credited with discovering with discovering gorillas. A gorilla. Okay. Okay. In 1902. Oh, what the hell, man? Okay. Anyway. <laughs> 
Two canoes full of Maori men sighted Tasman's boat. Tasman sent out his men in a small boat, but due to misunderstandings, one of the Maori canoes rammed the boat, and in the resulting skirmish, four of Tasman's men were killed. Tasman moved on, and his mission to New Zealand was considered unsuccessful by his employers, the Dutch East India Company. Tasman having found no treasures or matters of great profit. Then, during another expedition by Captain James Cook in 1769, Cook's cabin boy, young Nick, (laughs) no last name, (laughs) okay, Uh, (laughs) sighted a piece of land, which is now called Young Nick's Head, (laughs) near Gisborne. Cook circumnavigated and mapped the country and led two more expeditions to New Zealand before being killed in Hawaii in 1779. Well, um... Uh, no love lost for that guy. Yeah. So the first Europeans or, Ma- or or in Maori, Pakia, to venture to New Zealand were mainly whalers, sealers, and missionaries. Uh, they had considerable contact with Maori, especially in coastal areas. Maori and Pakia traded extensively, and some Europeans lived among Maori. But the contribution of guns to Maori intertribal warfare, along with European diseases, led to a steep decline in the Maori population during this time. In 1840, New Zealand's founding constitutional document, the Treaty of Waitangi, was signed by both Maori chiefs and representatives of the British Crown. After the treaty was signed, the British population quickly grew larger than the Maori population. For more than a century after the signing of the treaty, Pakia culture was dominant in New Zealand. Maori were expected to adapt to Pakia culture. Ah, yeah. Be more white. But I can't. <laughs> I can't do that. My skin's brown. My, my hair curls. It doesn't come out of my head straight. What am I supposed to do? Throughout the 19th and much of the 20th century, the homeland of Britain had an enormous influence on New Zealand. Government, administration, education, and culture were largely built on British models. You know, I mean, you don't need to copy everything they do. Am I right? Uh, <laughs> now... Beginning in the 1950s, the New Zealand government encouraged substantial emigration from several Pacific countries, including Samoa, Tonga, and Fiji, to fill a labor shortage. Consequently, to fill a labor shortage, y'all are really playing with us out here. Consequently, the Pacific Islander population in New Zealand had grown to 45,000 by 1971. Many overstayed their visas, and the government turned a blind eye because they needed the workers. But... During the late 60s and early 70s, New Zealand's economy declined. This economic downturn led to increased crime, unemployment, and other social ills, which disproportionately affected the Pacific Islander community. Right. And then so whenever there's like strife, the Mm -hmm. first thing people seem to do is attack the other attack so the here other, comes yeah. we've seen this here before beginning in the 1970s or the mid 1970s the new zealand government implemented something called the dawn raids these operations involve special police squads conducting raids on the homes and workplaces of suspected overstayers throughout new zealand usually at dawn homes were forcibly entered in the early hours of the morning tactics that caused outrage and brought accusations of racism if they the shoe wrong. fits yeah <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Samoan and Tongan overstayers were singled out with people stopped in the street and asked for proof of residency. Now, what does that sound like to you? Yeah. So the Don raids unfairly targeted Pacific Islanders since Pacific Islanders only comprised one third of the overstayers, but made up 86 percent of those arrested and prosecuted for overstaying. The majority of overstayers were from Great Britain, Australia and South Africa. Look at that. What do those three things have in common? They're super white. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The Don raids were condemned by different sections of New Zealand society, including the Pacific Islander and Maori communities, church groups, employers and workers unions and anti-racist groups. One Pacific group known as the Polynesian Panthers. Hell yeah. I heard this and I was all (laughs) over it. They combated the Don raids by providing legal aid to detainees and staging retaliatory Don raids on several national cabinet ministers, Hell which yeah. I think is hilarious. I know. <laughs> <laughs> by 1979, the government terminated the Don raids since the deportation of overstayers had failed to alleviate the ailing New Zealand economy. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. What y'all it didn't work. <laughs> Wait a minute. What y'all thought was going to happen? Forgot. So beginning in the 1980s, Maori culture started to undergo a renaissance. Since then, there has been a renewed focus on biculturalism, which is based on the partnership established between Maori and the crown by the Treaty of Waitangi. New Zealand now has three official languages, English, Maori, and New Zealand Sign Language. English is the main language. However, around 4% of people speak the Maori language. This makes it the second most commonly spoken language in New Zealand. I think that's amazing. Yeah. Um, Initiatives such as Maori Language Week, Maori Language Schools, and a Maori Language Television Station all play a role in making sure Maori remains a living language embraced throughout New Zealand. Um, and I just think that is dope. Even for researching this, star- this story, <laughs> I was looking up like uh, podcasts about Maori culture, and some of them were actually in Maori. And I was in like, Maori. this yeah. is not going to work for me, but it's, uh, it's <laughs> but cool. But it's super cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Today, the population of New Zealand is made up of people from a range of backgrounds. 70% are of European descent. 17% are indigenous Maori. Wow. 15% are Asian and eight percent non-Maori Pacific Islanders. The total equals more than 100 percent because some people identify as more than one. Another incredible thing, New Zealand, that you've done is let people be who they are. Let them check more than one box. If that applies to them, you don't get to do that in the United States. Like I've like sometimes I'll just do other because I'm I'm Garifuna, Afro-Indigenous and African-American. And like there's no there's no there's no box for for both of those things. And it's just a frustrating thing because you have to pick one. And um, which one do you pick? Which one do you pick? Yeah. So way to go, New Zealand, for letting people be who they are, at least on paper. Uh, So (laughs) while still a member of the British Commonwealth and still heavily influenced by its colonial period, Maori culture is now a core part of the New Zealand's national identity. And with a history of Maori, European, Pacific Island and Asian influences, New Zealand's population of five million people is a melting pot of cultures. Although Jane Elliott, one of the best white ladies in the whole wide world, says we shouldn't try to be a melting pot because people lose 
lose their lose who they are, lose parts of who they are right. by melting to try to um, melting into other people. We should be a salad, yeah. oh, a salad a good, of cultures. I like that. Yeah. A salad of cultures. Yeah, there we okay. go. So New Zealanders like to think of themselves as open and tolerant and often say that there's no racism in New Zealand. Oh, boy. But New Zealand has had race relation problems since the country was colonized by Britain. It may not be as overt as it is in the U.S., but it's there. Mm. And when U.S. Dr. Satra Brown, a black woman, moved to New Zealand for work. She says she was she experienced daily microaggressions in the form of insults, put downs and snubs. Microaggressions are proven to exact a significant psychological toll on recipients and also create the base that systemic racism, hate crimes and genocide are built upon. And Maori and Pacific Islanders have continuously been suffering from structural racial discrimination, mainly in education and justice and work. Now, welcome to Culture Corner. As I said, Mercury's in reggaeton, and the whites really tried it this week with microaggressions against me. <laughs> now, <laughs> what is a microaggression, Wendy? Well, I'll tell you. It's a statement or action or incident uh, regarded as an instance of indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group, um, such as a racial or, eth- or ethnic minority, such as like the Maori. And um, examples include questions like, where are you really from? <laughs> or you're pretty for a brown girl. Or oh god, you speak English so well. Oh my god, or, touch <laughs> touching your hair or your skin without your permission. And by the way, I have been keeping a log of microaggressions for the past three years. You have? I have. It is wow. a Google document, and it is very long. <laughs> I hope I'm not in there. No, no, no. No, okay, you good. are not. But but there's a lot of people. And when I do write my book, man, I'm still We're trying to decide if there. I'm going to use real names or not. <laughs> anyway. So I was just thinking about how uh, men that do that to women. Too. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Talk about it, Beth. Give us an example. Like uh, when they make sexist jokes. Yeah. And uh, they're just like, ha, ha, ha. What? You can't take a joke? Right. Or, or oh, you're so you sensitive. Know, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Or you know? are you on your period? That's the oh, worst. Yeah. You want my, you want great. You, you yeah. want to die today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that sucks. Yeah, it does. We yeah. all experience it and we should all try yeah. to be better. Right. Because it, yes. it really does. Uh, Absolutely. So. Yeah. Structural discrimination, also known as structural inequality, systemic discrimination, institutional racism, and white supremacy, occurs in a society when an entire network of rules and practices disadvantages less empowered groups while serving at the same time to advantage the dominant group. One of the results of structural discrimination is that life expectancy for Maori is shortened by five to seven years, even when adjusted for income. So even wealthy Maori live fewer years than non-Maori who are impoverished. That's nuts. Yeah, I know. I know. Racism will kill you. It's true. (laughs) New Zealand also has white nationalist movements, mostly concentrated in Christchurch, a city that has long been notably whiter than the other parts of the country. And on March 15th, 2019, a white supremacist and member of the alt-right went on a shooting spree in which he shot up two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. 51 people were killed and the shootings were the deadliest in modern New Zealand history. In response, New Zealand tightened its gun laws. Remember, I remember thinking, what a tragedy, but 
damn, they really got they, their shit together. Yeah. yeah. So the whole world saw that New, New Zealand was uh, got their shit together faster than the rest of us when it came to gun violence, as we mentioned, the Christchurch, and also with COVID-19. Right. Though the country is not perfect. Um, and for those of y'all that thought there was no racism or white supremacy in New Zealand, newsflash, you were wrong. And per acclaimed filmmaker Taiki Waititi, uh, he's from New Zealand and he's made really cool films uh, like uh, Thor. Um, that's the first one that comes to mind. He says, New Zealand is racist as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> the Treaty of Waitangi addressed Maori grievances, Maori land rights, the Maori language, culture and racism. But per the Human Rights Commission, quote, the guarantee of equal rights promised in the treaty remains unfulfilled today as systemic disadvantage remains to be fully addressed, unquote. There are more than 200 ethnicities represented in a population of approximately Approximately 5 million people in New Zealand, which is dope. The Human Rights Commission in New Zealand acknowledged the importance of addressing institutional barriers within New Zealand's social institutions, stating that these barriers help to create social inequalities, which in turn limit the access to and fulfillment of New Zealand's human rights obligations, which pretty good job, New Zealand. At least at least you acknowledge. Yeah. Our subject today, Tracy Goodman, lived in Palmerston North. Palmerston North is the country's eighth largest urban area with an urban population of 81,500. But Palmerston North has often struggled with a negative image in the minds of many New Zealanders. Some people refer to it as Palmy, P-Town, or Swamp City, as it's known for having dreary weather and being boring. Wind (laughs) Wind turbines line the nearby mountain ranges, so it should be no surprised to anyone that this place is also very windy. But Palmerston North is also flat and there are few hills, so cycling is popular. And on the weekends, groups of cyclists can be spotted everywhere. Martin, where our story takes place, is a quiet rural town about a half hour's drive to the northwest of Palmerston North. It was originally called Tutenui, meaning dung heap. Oh, no. Oh, whoa. Okay. <laughs> Shit pile. Oh, wow. <laughs> In 1869, it was renamed Martin. I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. It was named after the birthplace of Captain James Cook exactly 100 years after he first landed in New Zealand. Martin is a small town of about 5,500, which started out as a hub for the local agricultural industries. After the arrival of the railway in 1878, the area experienced rapid growth and soon industries such as engineering, sawmilling, and textile production began popping up. Timber from Rangitike forests served the town's two timber mills. Martin is the largest town in the Rangitike district, which has a total population of about 15,000. So that's in the entire district. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. Really tiny. Martin's ethnicity is made up of 77% European, 23% Maori, which is more than the national average. Right. 2% Asian, 8% Pacific Islander, and 0.1% Middle Eastern, Latin American, or African, and 2% other. So now we're going to... So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport... Then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out 
I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh -huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance. That's right. It's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test. Sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. <laughs> As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. And get into Tracy Jean Goodman's early life. Her maiden name was Hamahona, and she was born in 1963. She moved around a lot during her youth, but lived for a few years in Martin and attended Rangite College, a high school in Martin. Her mother's name is Puti Johnson, and she had at least six siblings. We don't know much about her father. At the age of 15, Tracy left home for Auckland with her older brother. A year later, Tracy was convicted of her first crime, breaking into a car in Auckland, and she was sent to a reform school. According to her sister Leah, quote, My brother blames himself for the way she is because he didn't look after her properly, unquote. Tracy struggled with drug abuse and a gambling addiction. She's also alleged to have a sex addiction. She began committing burglaries and friends and associates said her preferred victims were elderly people because they were slow moving, had bad sight and hearing, and followed set routines. She usually took cash and small items that she could carry easily. For a time, Goodman worked for Meals on Wheels, but she used her job to find likely targets. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it has been alleged that she would often burglarize a house at least twice. She would wear cut-off jeans her hair tied back and covered with a baseball cap, maybe to disguise her gender. If anyone confronted her, she would ask, is Adrienne here? That's pre that's pretty smart. That's pretty smart. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, you know, there's there's something about uh, thievery and this kind of criminal activity. I often believe it is associated more with survival than and less than less less so with a thrill for. Just steal. I just love stealing. Woo. You right. know, but yeah, there might be a thrill involved in it, but you're not burglarizing people on a regular basis because it's fun. I think it's mostly a means to survive. So I'll right. give her that. Or, or it may be that it starts out as a means to survive and then it gets fun. Yeah. I saw God in 60 Seconds with Nicolas Cage and Angelina Jolie. It looked <laughs> like a rush. Uh, so in 2000, Tracy was sent to the Shiloh Retreat, a Christian rehab clinic where she said that she developed spirit spiritually as part of the program she was forced to face one of her victims in a rest home oh my god and she claimed that it had taught her empathy she said that she then gave up burglary which as we will see was not true 
at all. Although <laughs> it does appear that she did find religion. At the Shiloh Clinic, Tracy met a man named Leslie Goodman. In 2002, the two married. They then embarked on a crime spree and committed dozens of burglaries. Les would be the driver and keep lookout while Tracy would go inside and commit the burglary. While living in Palmerston North, they would travel to different towns in the Manawatu and Rangitike districts to commit their crimes, including the town of Martin. Les later described Tracy as jealous, possessive, and argumentative. Now, I don't know. Was she just a strong woman uh, <laughs> that he couldn't handle? Yeah, yeah. Take it with a grain of yeah. salt because this is her ex-husband. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> he claimed that her eyes would light up after a burglary. A rush, she said, was better than sex. He called her a chameleon and said her concerns about other people were a ruse to fool them into a sense of comfort. He claimed that her obsessive jealousy would lead to violent attacks against him. And when he finally got sick of it, he left her. A woman named Andrea Stratford also met Tracy at Shiloh around 2000. She has said of Tracy, quote, I would describe Tracy as schizophrenic, dishonest, jealous, possessive, and nasty. Oh, I believe the girl has evil in her, but I've never said I don't like her. I'm a Christian. Unquote. All right. Well, Andrea, I can just, yeah, I can just imagine her sniffing at the end. <laughs> Andrea, please don't write my obituary. Uh, I'll ask somebody else to do it or leave it blank. Stratford, Stratford says Goodman often asked her to come with her on burglaries, but she did only once. Stratford distracted a little old lady at a property near Fielding while Goodman went inside and stole $600. According to Stratford, Goodman blew her share on slot machines. On other occasions, Goodman would give Stratford's, Stratford stolen jewelry to pawn. Tracy Goodman had a young son who it is said was her lifeline. We don't know who his father was, but he was eight years old in 2004, so it was not Les Goodman. Tracy Goodman lost custody of her son in 2004 when he was taken away by social services. Her subsequent journal entries were full of calls for angels to protect him, Aww. and she desperately wanted to gain back custody of him. It appears that she genuinely loved her son. Oh, man. Um, I was just going to mention, though, that with BIPOC people, Black, Indigenous people of color, it, it they they are overrepresented over in the prison system in right. New Zealand specifically. We're talking about Maori people, um, overrepresented in the prison population, but they're only about fifteen percent of the population overall. But it's also true that they're overrepresented when it comes to systems like the uh, social services systems, where it's easier for um, these institutions and these systems to see a Maori family or an indigenous family and be critical of it because right. it's not familiar. Um, right. And it's easier for them to go into these homes and take children away. You're not acting white. Yeah, you're not acting white. Uh, so that uh, disqualifies you as a good parent. And we got to get these kids out of here. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, Tracy may have been a bad mother, but obviously she loved her kid. We don't we don't really know. But I'm just saying in general, it's something to think about. So now we're going to get into the timeline. Now, according to Les Goodman, Tracy Goodman first burgled Mona Morris's flat into 2003. Now that is a tongue twister. When he was still working as her accomplice, Mona Morris, 83, sewed and collected doilies. Oh, remember those? 
all the old yeah. ladies had them. Had now, doilies, yeah. yeah, she was the mother of nine, grandmother of 26, and great grandmother of 19. She was born in Palmerston North, but had moved to Martin after her husband's death and had been there for 45 years. She eventually moved into Cobber Kane Housing Complex, where she lived for 18 years. She was a tiny four foot six. Oh that my is gosh. tiny. Yeah. But was known as feisty and fiercely independent. She was often seen walking the streets of Martin with her shopping or going out with the other pensioners for lunch. She was popular and often offered to pick up things from the shops for people, and her family and friends visited a lot. One of her neighbors compared her to a sparrow because she was always chirpy and on the move. She sounds really cute. She does sound lovely. On the afternoon of January 3rd, 2005, Goodman was caught in the act of burglaring a house belonging to a woman named Elizabeth Coleman, one street over from Mona Morris's flat. Goodman ran away when surprised by Elizabeth, but later admitted to a charge related to that incident. It's alleged that somewhere between 6 p.m. and 7 p.m. on January 3rd, 2005, Goodman entered Mona Morris's flat to steal from her. It's believed that Goodman thought that nobody was home in the flat, but she was wrong. Mona was home. It is alleged that when Mona confronted Goodman, Goodman punched her in the head up to four times, knocking her to the floor, possibly unconscious. Goodman then got a knife, lifted the woman's blouse, and stabbed her, inflicting six symmetrical wounds around the breast and through the heart. Mrs. Morris was found dead in her home on January 5th, 2005 by family members. According to Andrea Stratford, the woman that Goodman met at the Shiloh Rehab Clinic in 2000, Goodman turned up at her flat sometime after the murder with a new haircut cut close to her scalp and died. According to Stratford, quote, she said she was friggin' shitting herself because something had gone wrong, but she didn't say what and she asked me if she could swap vehicles with me, unquote. Wow. Friggin, yeah. friggin, friggin, friggin shitting, shitting herself. herself. Wow. What happened? What is it, girl? <laughs> now, uh, Goodman also gave Stratford a navy blue handbag and asked her to get rid of it. The bag contained numerous items from burglaries, including a black purse and a blue tape measure, which the Morris family later identified as belonging to Mona. Andrea also claimed there was something else in the handbag, an identification card with a photo of an old lady with the first name Mona. But she said said she threw that in the trash because she didn't think it was a good thing to keep around. Huh. Okay. Well, now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Detective Sergeant Tim Smith said the case began as a genuine whodunit. Quote, (laughs) from an early stage, it was obvious that there were no eyewitnesses, no immediate forensic evidence, and though there was the obvious motive of burglary gone wrong, there were other motives that had to be considered. Unquote. So I have to laugh at the genuine whodunit. Yeah. Uh, my daughter loves that word, whodunit. <laughs> <laughs> and anytime they say that on a show, she's like, it was a genuine whodunit. <laughs> I don't think I've heard that, that phrase before. You haven't? No, but I like it. I can see why she loves it. <laughs> they always say it on the true crime shows. <laughs> Oh, genuine whodunit. It was a genuine whodunit. Ooh, I like it. It fits. 
Police initially thought the stab wounds around the breast indicated a sexual element to the crime, and for a time they explored that as a motive. Dive teams searched Martin's waterways in search of a murder weapon that was never found, and up to 40 officers were brought in to canvas more than 2,000 residents. With a torrent of information coming in from the public, there were well over 100 suspects at one point, and at least 8,000 people were spoken to before the 18-month investigation ended. Goodman came under suspicion by by the end of April 2005. Detective Smith said it became clear there was a burglar in Martin who specialized in stealing purses and cash from the elderly, and Goodman's car registration was taken down after a burglary in Napier, which is actually pretty far away from Martin, about a two and a half hour drive, at least when I Google mapped it. Hmm. So that's kind of weird. It is weird, but when you specialize in stealing, I mean, <laughs> it's probably nothing. She's yeah. <laughs> bored, sir. Certified in thievery. Uh, so Goodman, who had numerous previous convictions for crimes such as burglary, fraud, and shoplifting, was initially charged with the Napier burglaries, but was still only a person of interest in relation to the murder. Goodman was brought in for questioning on May 7th in relation to the burglaries. On May 8th, she was questioned about her movements over the Christmas New Year period, and it was established that Goodman had been in Martin on January 3rd, 2005, and that she had no alibi. Dang it. So police jumped on Goodman's Christianity in the hope of coaxing a confession. During one interview, an officer read Goodman the 12-step program based on the Ten Commandments, which was used at Shiloh, her recovery center, I think, and included the concepts of admitting admitting to yourself and others what you have done and making amends to people you have harmed and confessing or making reparation. They also tried to play on Goodman's love for her son, saying she should come clean and be honest to give the boy something to be proud of. Detective Smith said, quote, I explained that her son would go off the rails like her unless she gave him some hope, unquote. That is some bullshit. Now, yeah, this that's, cop, that's this, kind of shitty. Who, who are you, Detective Smith? Get out of here. Get out of my face. <laughs> Don't be a detective anymore. This is garbage. Uh, after two days of police interrogation, she admitted to the burglaries. But when she was asked about when she was last at the flats where Mona Morris lived and when she had met Mrs. Morris, Goodman said she had never met her or any of her family and had never been in her flat. She said, quote, I wasn't in there. I didn't do it. Am I getting charged with murder? Unquote. The detective then asked her if she was okay because she sounded upset, to which Goodman replied it was because he was saying that she was at Mrs. Morris's flat. Yeah. Is she upset because she's caught or upset because she did something bad? I don't know. Or upset because he's accusing her of something she didn't do. Who knows? Quote, I've never hurt the old people that I've stolen from physically, emotionally. Well, I found that out later, but not physically. I've never physically harmed any of the victims I've stolen from or ripped off. I don't know Mona Morris, and I've never been to her place, unquote. Goodman said she was getting agitated because of her past, but that she didn't know anything about the murder and did not know why whoever killed Mrs. Morris hadn't just stolen from her and left her alone. Good question. (laughs) 
<laughs> is she speaking to herself out loud <laughs> in this interrogation room? <laughs> now, in late 2005, Goodman was sentenced to seven years on her burglary charge. Police then had plenty of time to thoroughly investigate Mona Morris's murder. While she was in prison for the burglaries, she allegedly confessed to the murder of Mona Morris to an old friend and fellow inmate at Arahata Prison in Wellington, saying she had stabbed Mrs. Morris five or six times, a number that had not been released in the media. Ooh, one black hair was found in Miss Morris's flat, and it was determined via DNA to have come from someone in Goodman's maternal family. Hang on a second. <laughs> DNA does it again. Well, kind of. <laughs> Police interviewed Andrea Stratford, the uh, the woman who had possession of the purse and the tape measure stolen from Mrs. Morris's flat. When police came to search her flat, Stratford immediately handed over the tape measure and the purse that she said Goodman had given to her, and they were later identified as belonging to Mona. In July of 2006, after an 18-month police investigation, Goodman was charged with the murder of Mona Morris. At her first court appearance after being charged, she called through a steel grill in in the cells for family to look after her son. She sobbed, quote, protect my son, tell him I love him, protect my son, unquote. It is this love or the fear of losing him forever that is believed to have been behind the murder of Mrs. Morris. Crown prosecutor Andrew Cameron later said, quote, she could not afford to be seen, could not afford to be detected, committing offenses. She was cornered in a confined space on edge and couldn't be caught. She lost it and killed Mrs. Morris. Unquote. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. So now we're going to get into the trial. So the trial took place in Wanganui, a city of about 42,000, about half an hour's drive northwest of Martin. The local prison there, Kaitoki, was men only. So Goodman could not be housed there during the trial. So at first, Goodman, who was an inmate of Arohata Prison in Wellington, was staying in a temporary holding cell at Wanganui Police Station. Police were required to leave the light on overnight because the corrections department considered Goodman an at-risk prisoner. But when the judge in the case questioned whether Goodman can have a fair trial with insufficient sleep, an arrangement was made for the corrections department to transport Goodman to and from the Palmerston North Police Station on Monday through Friday and the Arahata Prison on the weekend. 
The court took about 45 minutes to select the jury, and numerous members of the large jury pool were turned away because they knew the Crown witnesses. It's a small town, y'all. Teeny <laughs> tiny. Now, the jury consisted of four men and eight women, one of whom was either Maori or Pacific Islander. Tracy Goodman, who was 43 at the time, quietly pleaded not guilty to one count of murder and one of burglary. With Goodman's admitted criminal history, Mr. Atunovic, her defense counsel, advised the jury against prejudice and asked them to put their feelings toward Goodman to one side. He said, quote, it's accepted her actions affected a large number of elderly people and she's doing her time for that. But that does not make her a murderer. I can't ask you to like Tracy Goodman. All I ask is that you give her a fair trial, unquote. The Crown case was largely circumstantial. Les Goodman, Tracy's ex-husband, gave evidence about burglaries he committed with his ex-wife. He referred to a burglary that he said his former wife had committed at Mrs. Morris's flat in 2003, which was important evidence for the Crown, who claimed Goodman always returned to previous properties she had already burgled. And police had evidence that Mrs. Morris had been robbed in 2003. Oh, they got her. Andrea Stratford also testified she was a problematic witness because she had more than 100 convictions on her record. She Yikes. was uh, applying to child, youth and family for access to her 15 year old son. CYF is kind of like what we have in the U.S. is it's Child Protective Services and is now called Oranga Tamariki Ministry for Children. She later said, quote, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. It nearly cost me my son. It didn't go down well with CYF knowing a murderer. None of us witnesses have reason to lie. We're hanging our own necks, all of us. We've all got stuff to be guilty of, but none of us are guilty of murder. I've done this for Mona Morris, no one else, not her family. I can never bring Mona back and I can never bring back her ID, hmm? but I know I touched it, real as I am today, unquote. She's apologizing for for losing the ID? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so two witnesses. Does that not seem ridiculous and unnecessary? Am I the only one? <laughs> like murder compared to ID? Like, uh... Yeah, well, I think she's saying that because if she had held on to the ID, then that would have been a slam dunk. Oh, thanks, OG of true crime. Comes through every time. Now, two witnesses put Goodman at the scene in the hour before Mrs. Morris was murdered. Elizabeth Coleman testified that she saw Goodman at around 5.20 p.m. acting suspicious viciously at her house, a couple streets over from Mrs. Morris's home. Goodman had already admitted to police that she had attempted to burgle Coleman's house. Another woman saw a car similar to Goodman's parked near the flats where Mrs. Morris lived around 6 p.m. In the same spot Goodman later told police she parked at when visiting her niece, who also lived in the same flats. Remember, is Andrea here? Or Adrian? <laughs> uh, so there was also the one black hair that was found in Ms. Morris's flat, determined via DNA to have come from someone in Goodman's maternal family. However, since Goodman's niece also lived at the Cobber Kane housing complex, it could have been from her. The jury of eight women and four men came to a verdict after about eight hours. Goodman looked down and pressed her hand to her forehead as the jury declared her guilty of murder. She remained controlled 
controlled, but members of her defense counsel cried as they watched her leave the dock. That's interesting that they cared about her um, so much. Within seconds of this, the sole Maori or Pacific Island juror collapsed. One of Ms. Morris's 28 grandchildren, Tina Henley, who was a paramedic, came to her aid as court staff called an ambulance. She was later determined to be okay. Um, So now we're going to get into where are they now? What do you got? The death penalty was abolished in New Zealand in 1989, having not even been used since 1957. Wow. Offenders sentenced to life imprisonment must serve a minimum of 10 years imprisonment before they are eligible for parole. Although the sentencing judge may set a longer minimum period or decline to set a minimum period at all, meaning that the offender will spend the rest of their life in prison. Released offenders remain on parole and are subject to electronic tagging for the rest of their life. Mm. Tracy Goodman was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum non-parole period of 19 years. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so after the trial, the Morris family reflected on what Mona had missed. Since her death, a granddaughter had got engaged and two other grandchildren had children of their own. Mrs. Morris's would have celebrated her 86th birthday during the murder trial. In a family statement, they said the verdict went some way toward closure, but would never make up for a good for Goodman's actions. Quote, it in no way makes it any easier to know that this woman was responsible for the taking of our mother's life. We now have to endure the rest of our lives without someone we cared for and loved. We miss her so much, unquote. As far as we know, Tracy's family still lives in Martin, and her mother actually moved into the Cobber Cane housing complex where Miss Morris died. It is It was unclear to me whether or not she had a choice in the matter, and I believe they are low-income apartments. Yeah, they often were referred to as pensioner apartments, which uh, retirees. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Martin Mayor Bob Buchanan said it was the first murder in nearly 140 years, and in a town where people sometimes still left their doors unlocked, it was, quote, the end of a way of life. It was unbelievable that a thing like that happened in Martin. The older, vulnerable people in the community housing where Mona died were especially spooked. Some wanted to move out. We were very worried something like this could happen in a small town and when it was going to happen next, unquote. First murder in 140 years? I know. That's, that's crazy, right? Yeah, I can't even believe it. Can't even wrap my mind around that concept. Uh, <laughs> there's murders all over the place in the United States. Uh, so an old friend from her Shiloh days, who asked not to be named, says Goodman had always been a Jekyll and Hyde character. Quote, you have no idea what kind of lifestyle that woman led. It was madness, absolute madness, drugs, gambling, thieving, sex, anything to lock out what was going on inside her head. It's hard to feel sympathy for a murderer, but it's quite sad, really, unquote. So now we're going to get into what made her snap and our takeaways. What do you got for us, Beth? Well, I think her friend was on to something when she said that Tracy was doing anything to lock out what was going on inside her head. Yeah. And addictions are often used to to bury emotions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We don't know, unfortunately, what happened in her early life, uh, but all signs point to it was super fucked up. Super (laughs) fucked up. (laughs) And I'm guessing racism was probably involved in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Like we said earlier, racism can kill you and really fuck you up internally. Yep. Um, I'm actually not 100% convinced that she murdered Mona Morris. (gasps) 
two dun dun duns in one episode? <laughs> Wait a minute, what? So it makes logical logical sense that she was there and she did it because you know, okay, she's a burglar. Yeah. She was around in the same area, uh-huh, uh-huh. and you know, it's her mo. Yeah, go um, on. Mm-hmm. But the the witnesses, like her ex husband. You know, he yeah. probably had an axe to grind, grind so oh. I, I don't know about his testimony. Uh-huh. And her prison friend was kind of sketchy, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. And Andrea Stratford, I don't know about her. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The, the DNA evidence wasn't as slam dunk as you would think. Yeah. Because Goodman often visited her niece at the same uh, apartment complex. So the hair could have been brought in on Mona's shoe or something. So, right. Um, I, I don't know if I could have found her guilty, to be honest. But I also wasn't at the trial. Yeah. And I didn't see and hear all of the evidence. So I think I, you know, but it, it, just looking at it from here, I don't think I would have been able to uh, find her guilty. And also, the yeah, other thing yeah. that was weird was the um, the stabbing around the breast. Yeah. Like, who does that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean... <laughs> it was completely unnecessary, you know? Ah, yes, it was. <laughs> um, I... I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing, I'm picturing like Dance Dance Revolution, but with stabs. <laughs> uh, and I, it is totally unnecessary. But um, to your point about um, addictions being used to bury emotions, um, right. one of the things that I think we don't know a lot about Tracy growing up, but uh, in her indigenous family, um, I believe she probably had to do what she had to do in order to survive. You know what I'm saying? Right. She came from a very large family. And um, my understanding left is... Left home at 15. Left home at 15. And my understanding from watching so much Maori content this week uh, and loving every minute of it is that um, the New Zealand government limited indigenous people's access to fishing and agriculture. So sort of limited their ability to like thrive. Um, So this systemic oppression and poverty causes pain and that trauma is generational and it is also generational how we learn how to cope. So her substance use, um, her sex addiction, again, all ways to cope with pain. Um, right, right. And uh, she, we noted that she grew up before the resurgence uh, of indigenous culture, um, but she really was of age when um, Maori culture and activists and artists were really thriving. Um, it was like, it was interesting to me that she was like Ocean's Eleven with how she loved robbery. <laughs> Where are you, George Clooney? Um, and I, 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 I'm thinking like I wish now I'm thinking oh, there should be like a reverse. Um, hip hop air horn for DNA when it doesn't come through because it, <laughs> it didn't come, come through, through this time. It didn't come wah, through wah, all the way. Wah. Yeah, and I am like a sad here, Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, what, I'm trying. Do I have a theme song? Uh, nah, I'll just do this. That one. was a nice podcast. Anyway, so um, <laughs> yeah, DNA didn't come through all the way this time, but um, you know, uh, it did make an appearance, and for that DNA, we we are grateful. But I we, really we am loving you. your theory, Beth. <laughs> that she might not have done it. Uh, And um, it is unfortunate that she targeted the most vulnerable folks in her community, the elderly. Um, And I sort of, before Beth like 
dropped the bomb on me like five <laughs> seconds ago. I was thinking, oh, escalation was inevitable. Like at the rate she was going, 85 burglaries? Right. She was bound to kill somebody at some point. But, you know, maybe <laughs> she did have boundaries. Um, yeah. And I found this case like so fascinating, researching it from a cultural standpoint. And yeah. we have shouted out Marata before. She's a famous Maori documentarian trailblazer woman who set out to decolonize the screen and um maori dumb i think is a word i heard uh on on one of the documentaries that i watched was just so beautiful to see and learn about and like the power of indigenous people around the world um and i i watched so many hakas (laughs) Uh, just those are just like uh Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, like spellbinding. Spellbinding. Yeah. But um, I, I will say I, it, it made me think. So um, Cal Drago, Game of Thrones. Uh, right, right. I don't know what his real name is, but he is. I don't know if he's Maori. Uh, I think he's Maori. Yeah. I th- okay. He might. Yeah. So he might be Maori. And he was on a red carpet. Now he's married to Lisa Bonet. Okay. Hello. Uh, th- he was on a red carpet and the red carpet questioner was like come on give us a haka and his oh his wife God. was like excuse me we are not doing that you racist piece of shit you can't just like snap your fingers <laughs> and demand a haka yeah. that's not how it works yeah, so you. yeah that's what i would call a microaggression yeah, um, yeah there you go yeah so um anyway the uh, lastly um we i watched several maori films as i said but the struggles of indigenous people in um new zealand continue so that's that's something we should keep in mind but this was a mm-hmm. really interesting case. It was. Three AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers. Glitches in the Matrix, Cult Leaders, Missing 411, Night Marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian Devil Worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. All right, now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So, if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. All right, fruities, we outside. Uh, The world is opening up and that means crimes are going up. So we would like to know what y'all are out here doing in these streets to stay safe and to not get murdered. So get at us. 
Um, you can you can find us on all the things. Beth will tell you in a second where to find us. But um, yeah, let us know what you all do to stay safe and uh, give us your tips on how not to get murdered. And we will share them on the show. Yeah, we need more tips. We do. Our tip jar is, is empty. It's empty. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any true crime goodies or any content about or by any marginalized, othered or underrepresented groups. Um, one of our listeners uh, gave us a suggestion to look at DJ Shub, who is an award-winning music producer and from uh, Six Nations of Grand River. And he's a Canadian artist. And uh, thank you to Michelle for putting us on to him. I actually did I had all these like reports to do for my nine to five and I, I, uh, the music like helped me get it done. So I was, I was really into it. Um, and also I wanted to shout out a Maori film from, um, 2010 called boy by Taiki Watiti. And it is, it is really, really good. Um, what a bunch of awards. So uh, stream it. You can stream it. All right. What do you got? Uh, well on discovery plus is a documentary called broken hearts. It's about Wait a the, minute. the Hart family. What? Yeah. Okay. The two lesbian ladies who adopted a bunch of black kids and then drove the whole family off a cliff. Oh my God. You remember you, that case? I do. Was it? Oh, so it was good. You're shouting it out. So yeah. it must have been yeah. really good, right? Okay. It was good. Yeah. Okay. I can't. It was eye opening. Yes. Really? Yeah. <gasps> okay, y'all. Well, that is DJ Shub, uh, music uh, producer and artist who's Canadian and indigenous, which you can find on Spotify or anywhere else you stream your music. And also, a Maori film called Boy that you can stream wherever you get streaming stuff and uh, Broken Hearts on Discovery Plus. Fantastic. Uh, well, this has been fun. And where can people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting there's no minimum and no commitment even a dollar would help and as always we have merch for sale on our website well y'all this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every thursday so until next time look alive y'all it's crazy out there Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. 
Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? (coughs) Or just a horrible accident? (coughs) That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. My name is Bill Huffman. And I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.